Hello, and welcome to this episode of the LCN Legal Podcast, bringing you expert views and analysis of the legal aspects of transfer pricing compliance. Our focus is always on real-world, practical insights that you can apply in your everyday work. In this episode, Paul Sutton discusses profit split arrangements. We look at some of the situations in which they're used, the role that intercompany agreements play, and some of the practical issues around ensuring that this documentation provides legal certainty and reflects the operation of the group. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Paul, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here again. So this time we're going to talk about profit splits. And I've read the um, profit split method described as a method for the brave. And it is perhaps uh, somewhat unusual among the five mainly used methods. What kind of scenarios or transactions are particularly uh, suitable to this method? So um, so where, where this method is different from other methods is that it's what's called a two-sided method. So rather than just testing one party and looking at the level of profits or return that it might receive for its activities, what it's doing is it's looking at the relative contribution of two parties or more than two parties um, to the profit-making machine, which you know, the business is, and then sharing up the profits based on those relative contributions. So um, it tends to be that you're looking at three main conditions in order for this method to apply. So firstly, each party is making unique and valuable contributions. Secondly, is is that generally speaking, the operations are highly integrated. And the third thing is that uh, there's a sharing, those parties share the assumption of economically significant risks. So classic examples of where uh, we see this method being applied is maybe when you have a multinational group and a distributed management team. So you might have a CEO in in one location, such as the US, and you might have a chief technology officer in in Dubai or Australia or or whatever. In other words, different members of the management team um, may be performing highly strategic functions um, and, and therefore their respective entities being compensated for that. So the two parties then are relatively equal, or at least they're both making a significant contribution. It's not a simple case where, you know, uh, one party owns all the IP and and another one simply sort of sells or or distributes a product. Well, it could be that the contributions are completely different in nature. So you might have one party which actually owns... um, all of a particular category of IP, such as manufacturing, know-how, or trademarks, uh, marketing intangibles, and another different party is making a completely different type of contribution, for example, the strategic direction of of the group. So it can be comparing apples and pears, um, and it's achieving or attempting to achieve a a rational and an economically justifiable basis for sharing up that pie, the profit pie, based on their respective contributions. And what role do intercompany agreements have when implementing this? I mean, how do the contractual terms in the ICA relate to the economic analysis? Well, I think one reason why uh, profit splits arrangements are particularly challenging from uh, a, a legal implementation perspective is that um, the the legal analysis actually comes in in, in two stages. So firstly, there was this point I mentioned that in general, the profit split method is only appropriate where 
the two parties or the multiple parties share the assumption of relevant risks. How do you know if uh, risks have been shared? Well, one is looking at contractual allocation of risk, um, and the other is looking at the actual control of those risks. So in other words, unless there's an appropriate legal basis showing that those risks have in fact been shared by virtue of the contractual allocation, then probably the, the profit split method is not appropriate at all. So you don't even get, get to that that's first stage. And conversely, on the back end, you know, having decided that the profit split method is the most appropriate method, clearly it needs to be implemented legally in a way that is consistent with the purported method. So it's it's a, a kind of mutual codependence of the TP analysis, the economic analysis on the one hand, and the, the legal contractual basis or implementation on the other. And the upshot of that is that those two aspects, the economic analysis and the legal analysis, need to go hand in hand. And this is something that we've seen before, isn't it? That the legal view of the world and the economic view of the world can't be separate. They have to be combined into and expressed um, together in the uh, legal implementation. Exactly. It goes back to the core point of consistency or, or alignment between operational reality, legal and contractual arrangements, um, control, um, and economic analysis. So all those factors hanging together. And I know that profit split arrangements can sometimes uh, involve actual profits and sometimes anticipated profits. What difference does that make to the actual terms of the ICAs in question? So it is actually such a fundamental difference that it completely changes um, the, the functionality of the agreement. So if we take a split of actual profits, so what is this is like commercially, it's a bit like a classic partnership. So if you imagine a professional partnership, say it's accountants or architects or whatever, and say you've got two partners, um, you might just agree between, or those individuals might agree between themselves to split the profits 50-50. So what does that mean? That means that they might, might take drawings during the year, but after each year when the financial outcome is known, then there's a true up or true down or whatever to affect that overall division of profits in the agreed proportions, which could be 50-50, 60-40. So that, that reflects a, a true shared assumption of, of risk and reward based on the actual outcomes. So, so that, that's, that's a, a profit sharing arrangement relating to actual profits. If it's a profit sharing arrangement for anticipated profits, it means that the basis of remuneration of the parties is something different. So it could be a percentage royalty if if a contribution uh, is in the form of IP or something like that, or it could be some other measure. In other words, you're fixing the measure in advance, but on the basis that the outcome might be different. So, so you, you're you're trying to achieve what you think would would give rise to your intended profit split but with the parties independently bearing the potential risk of unexpected upsides and, and downsides, which may affect the uh, the division of actual profits on a look-back basis. So it's actually fundamentally different in terms of the way that the contracts are designed. Okay, so that's the theory. Let's look at the practice. When uh, you're actually uh, drafting legal agreements to implement profit splits, what's the process? What's the thought process there? So, so as as 
as we talked about already, it's, it's about aligning the legal analysis with, with the economic analysis. So you could say the first step is, well, what are the profits that are being shared? So often you're talking about residual profits after parties or certain parties, certain members of the group have been compensated for routine activities, for example. So you're carving out what risks and what profits are not going into that shared shared pool. So and, and that needs to happen obviously from a sort of economic transfer pricing perspective and also needs to be reflected in uh, the overall legal documentation. So that's that's the first step. Second step goes back to the respective contributions of the parties, the, the so-called unique and valuable contributions so that's actually defining what does that what what are those respective contributions from an economic perspective and expressing that in a legal way so that might mean management's time or or, or management resources it might mean the contribution of pre-existing ip it might mean um, directing r&d activities um, so those different types of contribution need to be defined and expressed in the agreement yeah that needs to be ob obviously mapped against the actual legal and commercial of of sorry legal and commercial structure of the group so these so-called legal an anchor points that we often talk about then in in terms of the uh the measurement of the uh the contributions um that needs to be brought onto a common standard so that you can actually come up with a calculation so that includes things like defining what are the accounting standards which are going to be applied in order to measure those different contributions? What's the common currency of, of the calculation? Um, how do we exclude the risks or, or costs or profits which are not to be shared? And then coming up with the, the percentage for splitting those, those profits and at the same time dealing with the splitting of losses in that situation. You mentioned legal anchor points there. What exactly do you mean by that? So well, what, what we mean is mapping the economic arrangement, the commercial arrangement against or onto the legal and commercial reality of the group. So that includes things like which entities are the legal owners of IP. And we might be talking about different categories of IP here, such as manufacturing know-how or trademarks or, or patents. So that that's a legal... Uh, anchor point in the sense that it, it's objective reality, legal reality. You can actually um, you can actually verify that. Another legal anchor point could be the regulatory structure of the group. In other words, um, particularly in the financial services centre, which of those entities are regulated entities, and what does that mean in terms of the functions that are performed by those entities and the way that it interacts with the outside world. Another key legal anchor point would be which entities within the group are actually contracting with the outside world. So it might mean which entities physically buy raw materials from suppliers and which entities physically sell the products to the third party customers and are therefore probably recognizing that revenue, receiving those revenue. So again, we're, we're talking about the legal architecture of the group, which is verifiable as an objective reality. And our task is to, to map the economic intentions of the profit splits onto that legal architecture. Now, I know that uh, often the profit split percentages are fixed year to year, but that's not always the case. Sometimes they vary. So if they vary, what are the implications of that? 
So what it means from a legal perspective when we're designing the, the agreement is that it goes back to um, defining the different categories of contribution. So we've been that we've been talking about it could be pre-existing IP, it could be management services or, or, or whatever. Um, agreeing the basis on which that's going to be measured. So for example, for existing IP rights, it could be balance sheet values of of those intangible assets. Um, and um, applying different weightings to these different measurements, because we could be talking about comparing apples with pears, and therefore we need to define the relative value of an apple compared to the, the relative value of a pear. And what that looks like is often a weighting, so a percentage weighting. So it may be that management services is giving a weighting of of 30%, for example, in terms of the overall contribution, maybe IP rights, pre-existing IP rights also get a weighting of 30%, but it could be 40%. So that gets translated into an actual formula in the pricing clause or in the payments clause in the agreement that enables those profit sharing ratios um, to be calculated on a year-to-year -year basis by reference to the relative contribution made by the parties in that year or maybe in previous years. Right, so uh, it's not really that complicated. It's a fairly uh, common sense arrangement that the percentages reflect the, the contribution. So there's nothing inherently complex there. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess you're right. It's like anything, you know, as long as you go through a, a clear process a methodical process in terms of defining the contributions, measuring the contributions, and the calculation of the profit split. There's nothing inherently uh, difficult about it, but it is important to go through that process. Of course. And um, on which point? I mean, we have seen um, profit split methods go spectacularly wrong in the past. Coca-Cola springs to mind. That was a profit split arrangement that was uh, ended up with a tax adjustment running into many billions of dollars. So things can go wrong. Um, what what are the sort of most common mistakes, the, the, the traps that you think most pe people should be careful to avoid when applying a profit split method? Yeah, I, I, I would say that profit splits out of all the transactions is probably the one that is handled most poorly in our experience of, of, of reviewing uh, multinationals. So, for example, when we do a health check of existing agreements, um, and that's because very often the agreements just don't deal with the basics. They don't clearly define the contributions, don't clearly define the risks to be shared or not to be shared, doesn't clearly set out the basis of the profit split itself and doesn't define the nature of the payments. You know, the payments could be in the nature of fees for services or royalties or a combination of those. Um, you're right, Coca-Cola is, is probably the classic example in recent years of something which went horribly wrong. In one sense, it was so wrong, you know, that they, they it looks like uh, the taxpayer in that, in that case didn't even get to the first question of analysing it in a consistent way. You know, the agreements didn't even have uh, the right entities, didn't even mention the profit splits uh, percentages, you know, the so-called 10-50-50 method, let alone coherently describing the contributions or, or the risks. So, so they didn't even get to first base on, on that. So in one sense, it's a poor example of uh, how to do it right. And so, you know, it doesn't give us much clue uh, apart from just think about it. Um, but it is a great example of the practical implications of that lack of alignment. So uh, I think you've given us a really good theoretical overview there and also uh, a bit of a deep dive into some of the detail. So uh, 
profit split methods are still uh, a method for the brave, perhaps, but perhaps now people can approach them with their, a bit more confidence. If you could summarize, what do you think were the most important takeaways that you think people should take away from this podcast? Yes, yeah, so I think two points. The, the first point, the fundamental point, is that the economic analysis does go hand in hand with the contractual allocation of risk because it's absolutely inherent in the whole arrangement. You know, splitting of profits, splitting of, of losses. It's hard to almost impossible to demonstrate that through conduct alone. So if you don't have a clear agreement, um, you just can't say that this arrangement has been implemented in, in reality. So uh, that's that's point number one, which is that analysis does need to happen at the outset. Um, the second point is the same point that applies to any intercompany agreement, which is when we stand back and say, what are we trying to achieve here? Uh, we're trying to achieve a legal implementation, a legal agreement that with, will withstand scrutiny in five years' time, 60 years' time, seven years' time, or whenever the tax audit comes and will clearly be aligned with the TP policies, the TP documentation. Um, and that means it needs to express a structure which is aligned with legal reality, operational reality, economic analysis, and reflects a commercial arrangement which makes sense for the parties individually. That's what we're trying to achieve. And of course, that's a key message that applies to almost any intercompany agreement, isn't it? Almost any situation is... It has to, uh, as you say, make sense for both parties involved and uh, make commercial sense for, for every entity involved. 100%, yeah. Well, I think that's almost all we've got time for. There are uh, lots of other interesting uh, issues relating to this around risk and uh, lots of other things, which perhaps we'll uh, discuss in a future episode. But for now, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Elsian Legal Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. You'll find the contact details on our website, elsianlegal.com. And you'll also find more information about the issues discussed in this episode and much else besides. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Go to your podcast provider and search for the Elsian Legal Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.